Well, we're coming into the Christmas season together. In fact, if you don't know it already, today is the first day in Advent. So if you've got your Advent calendars, the little chocolates inside, then you can open the first one up. Um, my daughter, she, she tends to go through six or seven days in a day. So we've, we actually buy about three Advent calendars or four Advent calendars from Tesco's, you know, um, because she likes chocolates. Anyway, that's another story. But um, Advent means coming. And I like the church seasons. We don't make a big fuss about such things. It's not our tradition in Pentecostal circles. But I, I like the seasons. I like the seasons. I always enjoyed the church seasons when I was brought up in the Church of England. Um, because the church seasons often draw attention to the major truths. And thank God for Easter, because it's one time in the year where the whole church from all Christian denominations are thinking about the cross and the resurrection, and it focuses us on the key truths of salvation and resurrection. So I, I love Easter, I, I love Easter. And also Pentecost, I think Pentecost is wonderful. I mean, we talk a lot more about Pentecost than others, but all the churches, again, focusing on the truth of the birthday of the church. And so Advent is the preparation for Christmas. And I like Advent because we are preparing ourselves to receive that truth on Christmas Day. I like the feel. Do you imagine if we just sort of like didn't think about Christmas and all of a sudden say, oh, it's Christmas next week, and we go through the motions. And so this time of Advent, I want to encourage you to not just, oh, it's Christmas in a few weeks, and we have to get the presents done, but to dwell upon the truths of Christmas, to prepare your heart so that when we get into the, you know, the KT Christmas carol service, or the KT con Christmas concert, or the KT uh, Christmas Eve communion service, or the morning on Christmas Day, that we have allowed this incredible truth that God sent his only son into the world, that the word became flesh, to really filter afresh down into our hearts. I enjoy the Christmas period or the Advent period because it means that we are going to be focusing as preachers on these Christmas truths once again. Uh, I think it's a shame in some churches that profess to be, you know, modern and uh, they barely do any Christmas messages or they go through the Christmas motions and don't spend time to say, hey, wait a second, what is Christmas all about? Because the truth that Christ was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is absolutely essential for us. The doctrine of what we call the incarnation. When we talk about the incarnation, and that's what I'm going to be speaking about today, the doctrine of the incarnation or the incarnation is the truth that God became man in Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about, that God became man. And it's something that we should dwell upon. It's something that we should meditate upon. It's something that we shouldn't just hold loosely in our mind, but should be deep in our hearts, the revelation, because it's the most glorious and amazing truth that God would become man to save mankind. And so I want to talk a little bit about this truth, the incarnation, what that is and what it means to us so that we can go into Advent, this being the first of Advent. Advent isn't always the first of December, it's always the first Sunday in December. And so we can think about this, and immediately we can go in, as we begin to sing the carols and everything, and we can say, yeah, we have a fresh experience of this truth. It's wonderful, Hebrews chapter 1. If you ever want to go to Scripture and go to a scripture that proves that Jesus is both God and man, start with Hebrews chapter 1, and then also go, which we will do, to John chapter 1. The Jehovah's Witnesses can't cope with Hebrews chapter 1. and they, Well, they can't cope with John chapter 1, but they do twist it around a little bit. And so Hebrews chapter 1 is so wonderful because it 
talks about the incarnation, God coming to earth to become a man. So I'm going to read about, read this section, and we go, we're looking, what we're looking at is the fact that Jesus is God and that he's man. That, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angel winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are works of your hands. The whole doctrine of the incarnation is here in these passages. We see that at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrew speaks about human history. And he says in human history, God has spoken to our fathers in the Jewish nation by the prophets of God. But in these last days in human history, God's Son has entered into human history, has come into the world, the one who created all things, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or representation or mirror image of God because he is God. He's made the world, but now he has come into the world, into history, human history, in order to make the Father known. And then we say this, this, this person, this son of God that's come into the earth, he's, he's far more than an angel. For which of to the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son. And verse 6, and again, when he brings his firstborn into the world. He's talking about the incarnation, when God became man. He's talking about the virgin birth. And when he says, today I have begotten you, what he's talking about here, this is the father speaking, father God. He's talking about the day that Jesus was born on the earth. The word begotten. When we talk about the word begotten, it means unique birth. Unique birth. That's what it means. So, for example, um, uh, Abraham. When we speak about Isaac, Abraham's son, in the Bible, it speaks about Isaac being Abraham's only begotten son. Right? But Abraham had other children after Isaac. You know, he had uh, Ishmael by another wife, and he also took other wives and had other children. But Isaac is the only begotten son. There were other sons, other children, but what we mean by Isaac is that Isaac was unique. And so when you read, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, it's talking about his unique and only son in that sense of uniqueness, okay? Some people use this word begotten, and they say, oh, you see, Jesus didn't exist. There was a day when he was begotten, a day he came into the existence. But we've already read in Hebrews, haven't we, that everything was created by him. All things were created by him. Jesus, or, or the Son of God, is uncreated. But there was a time when he entered into history. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas 
we are, we are celebrating the moment in time when the Savior was born. And again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says. So there, what, when he brought his firstborn into the world, the firstborn was around before the world began. But there was a moment when he came into the world. And the word firstborn there means the one that inherits. Okay, it means the one that inherits. The firstborn inherits. So this was God's son, God's eternal son in Hebrews, stepping into time. He's creator. The son is creator, created everything. He's the exact representation of God. He would say later to Thomas, you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's greater than the angels. And God the father even addresses his son as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, uh, and you, Lord, this is the Father speaking to the Son, verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. So I hope you can see not just about the incarnation, God becoming man, but Hebrews chapter 1 is a rich source of showing Jesus to be both God and also man of God sending his son into the earth. And that's why it, it's a great place um, to, to go to with people that say Jesus was only a man and not God. But if we, uh, if we now go to John chapter 1, which is a passage that we often go, come to during Advent season, John chapter 1 is also rich in the doctrine of incarnation. That God became man in Jesus Christ. Again, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. That doesn't mean the Word began in the beginning, but in the beginning, the Word already was. In the beginning, there already was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That phrase, the Word was with God, in the Greek, the Greek word, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, the Greek word is prosupon, which means face-to-face. -face. So in the beginning, the word was face-to-face -face with God. The Son was face-to-face -face with the Father, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. Again, like Hebrews, we get this important definition that the word is God, the word is with God, and that the word created everything. Nothing that was created was created apart from the word. But then, when we uh, get down to verse 9, we begin to talk about this word that was with God and was God coming into the earth, the incarnation, coming into human history. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What's that? It's talking about the incarnation. He was in the world. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a, um, a fantasy figure. This word that was before all things came into the world. Well, how did he come into the world? He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then verse 11. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The most powerful phrase in the Bible when it comes to the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became man. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So again, we see this picture of God becoming man, God entering into human history himself, the word becoming flesh. The incarnation is about, well, when we talk about the doctrine of the incarnation, we're saying this, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is two things. He is fully God, but he is also fully man. This is the amazing thing. When Jesus was born in the manger and Mary held her son, what she held 
was fully human in every way. But what she also held was fully God in every way. Jesus, the Son of God, was not half man, half God. He was not part God, part man. He was fully God and fully human at the same time. We'll we'll talk about this later, this incredible mystery. If we look at um, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians chapter 2. And verse 9, well, let let me go back to verse 8 to give it context. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What an incredibly theological, biblically rich word when we're talking about the incarnation, isn't it? In other words, what Paul is saying is, don't go off human philosophy and clever traditions and demonic religions, uh, but go to Christ because in him, not part fullness of deity, not a little bit of fullness of deity, not 90% fullness of deity, but the whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God dwells. How does it dwell? Bodily. So in that passage, you see, you get the fullness of God, but you also get the reference to his human form. And that Paul can see no problem with the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus in bodily form. It's not like, well, how can a human body contain the fullness of God? Surely a human body is too small, a container for the fullness of God. Well, Paul says that's not a problem at all. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. When we uh, go to Philippians as well, Philippians Chapter 2, verse 5, just before Colossians and following, we have a wonderful picture of the incarnation, the story of Christmas. Have, Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he's God, did not, count, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, or humbled himself, by taking, it, by, sorry, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. It's there, isn't it? These are such clear passages. I find that many are, are, are Christians, often they... They had this basic idea that God became man, but if you ask them to back it up, they don't know any of these scriptures. These scriptures aren't alike. They're like, well, I guess God became man because the preacher told me so. But we're looking at the richness of this. And there are theologians and many theologians who aren't Christians, who are in theological colleges and universities today that don't believe this doctrine or think that it was something that was made up later by the church, that maybe 100, 200, 300 years later, the church began to see Jesus as God. But what we're seeing here is that the very earliest church understood incredible truths, and one of the truths that they understood, and was one of their main truths, is the truth of the incarnation, the truth of Christmas. So here we have... Though he was in the form of God. In other words, Jesus is God. There he is. He's God. He's in heaven. But he didn't quite equality with with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was equal with God, equal with the Father. It was only a while ago that we did a whole series, didn't we, on Trinity. Trinity truths. We spoke about how God is one being and three persons. One being and three persons. I am 
a human being. I am one being and one person. Although sometimes I think I've got a split personality, but it's not that it's not where it's meant to be. One being, one person. God is one being and three persons. And those three persons are co-equal. Co-equal. They are equal in their the divinity. And we see here, he's equal with God, but he didn't grasp it. In other words, Jesus said, I, I am equal with the Father. But I'm not going to hold on to that. Why? Because the message of the incarnation is the message of God's love for us. You see, God, Jesus, could have said, I'm equal with the Father. I'm not going to go down and make myself lesser or appear to make myself lesser at least. I'm not going to humble myself and be a servant. I'm a king. But the beautiful truth here is that when God became man, it was a huge, humbling, servant-like action for our benefit. How can anybody be proud at Christmas when you look at the humbling of God? I mean, we know that he wasn't born in a palace. He could have been. He could have been born in the palaces of Rome or Persia or anywhere. But we all know that he was born in a back room somewhere. Out of the way, nobody knew. Someone's shed or garage. You know, you hear about people in London that rent out, that they don't tell the council, but they put some lights and heaters in their sheds. And then people that come over with no money, they, they put them in their sheds in their garden. You've heard about that. That's where Jesus would be born, if he was born. And so the incredible humility, and yet this baby that was born was fully God. That's the beautiful thing about Hebrews chapter 1 and John 1 and what we're reading here, is that it's meekness and majesty. It's glory and humility, all in one being and all in one event. This is why Christmas is so amazing. Because you look at all the other religions, they can't touch this. They can't touch this. This, is, this could never be a human-made story. It's far too glorious. And in the doctrine of the incarnation, in the story of Christmas, we see God, who he is, what he's like, and his commitment to saving this world. Being born in the likeness of man being found in human form. So in this passage, we see that, that Jesus did not appear out of nothing. He wasn't created. When we were born, well, what happened was there was a time when we weren't. If you go back to your birthday, the day that you were born, when, when was your birthday? When was the day you were born? I was born on the 25th of December, Christmas Day, I, I literally was. I was born on the 25th of December, 1968. That's when I was born. And nine months earlier, I didn't even exist, except in God's mind, plan. And so there was a moment, and you think of your birthday, when you, when you were there, nine months earlier, you didn't exist. What happened was, is that your mother and father came together and God gave the life. And you started life. That moment of conception was the beginning of you. But it wasn't... The moment that, that Mary conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, that wasn't the beginning of the Word. That was the moment when the Word became flesh. And so the Christmas story, story is all about Jesus, or the Word of God, stepping down from heaven into human form. Always was before and and we've seen this here, the picture of Philippians. There is the Son of God, the Word of God, with the Father, saying, I am going to step into history. I am going to be fully God, as we saw in Colossians, and I am going to become man. John chapter 3, verse 31. Jesus speaks about coming from heaven. He didn't come from nothing like you and I created from nothing at the moment of conception with our mother and father. But John chapter 3, verse 31, Jesus speaking, He who comes from above 
is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, I, I, I haven't come from nothing. I, haven't, I wasn't like created in my mother's womb. I have come from a place. I have come from heaven. And the wonderful thing is, is when Jesus was born, when he came to earth, heaven came down to earth. He was like the ambassador of heaven coming to earth. We needed someone. We, we had prophets in the past, Hebrews chapter 1, that said they spoke from what they heard. But what we really need, needed was a heavenly man. That's what we needed. And so when Jesus came down from heaven, he came from heaven to earth to show us the way. It's like that hymn, he came down from heaven to earth to show us the way. Heaven to earth. And he says, I, I'm, I'm with you, but I'm not from you. I'm on the earth, but I have come with, mes with a message and a culture and an understanding that comes from heaven. John chapter 8, verse 58. Yeah. He says, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Jesus speaking to the Jews. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Before Abraham was, I am. So what Jesus is saying is I existed well before Abraham. He was the word that was with God. And was God before the creation of the world. And the Jews knew what he was saying. That's why they tried to stone him. They understood. They were stoning him because he was claiming to be God. And he used that phrase before Abraham was, I am. And in the Greek, ego aimai, I am. This is a reference to Yahweh. Do you remember that the name Yahweh or Jehovah, better to use the name Yahweh, but it means the same thing, Yahweh, Jehovah. Yahweh comes from God's revelation of himself when he said, I am. That's who I am. He said, he said um, to Moses, I am, that's who I am. And then in a few verses after that, he said, the great, he said, the I am has sent you. So when Jesus uses this word, I am, he is saying that he is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh made man. I tell you what, if I said that in an Orthodox synagogue today, I'd probably get stoned. I mean, seriously. I mean, I, I know a, um, a professor who um, was invited to go to a Jewish synagogue, a great professor of Hebrew, and they invited him to read in the synagogue, and he was reading from the Hebrew Old Testament. And you know that in your Old Testament Bibles, you'll never find in English the word Yahweh. What will you find? You'll find the word Lord, won't you? Big capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord with a big L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's not Lord at all in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. But because to the Jews, Yahweh is a name that you should never say because it's too holy, they use the word Lord instead. Well, in the Hebrew, it says Yahweh. But when you're reading it in the Hebrew, if you're, a Hebrew if, you're, if you're reading it in the Hebrew and reading it out loud, when you come to the word Yahweh, it says Yahweh, but you say Adonai, you say Lord. Well, this professor was reading it and he forgot. So he just began to read Hebrew and then began to read as Yahweh. They were so offended, never got invited back again. So that, if, if, if you can be offended by saying the word Yahweh, how, how, how much more offended? And this is why Jesus was, was such a stumbling block to the Jews. How much more offensive is it to say Yahweh became man? But that's what we're saying. 
we see this, and it's important that we see this. Um, John chapter 18, verse 4, is a lovely picture of Jesus being fully man, but also being Yahweh. He's in John chapter 18, verse 4. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, he's just about to be arrested. It looks like Jesus is at his weakest. It looks like he's going to be taken away by force. But you see what happens. It must have been incredible to see this. So incredible. Look, look what actually happened and imagine it. Here they are with their lanterns, their torches, the weapons, soldiers with officers and Judas and the Pharisees. And they come to get him. Then John 18, 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am, not I am he, I am. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. Now listen, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. They fell under the power of God. Then they get up and they carry on. But can you imagine being there? all in the dark with all these soldiers about to arrest him. And Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Yahweh, what are you? I am. And everybody in that garden falls under the power of God. They must have sort of thought, oh, what happened? Did you feel that? It must have been an earth tremor. That's probably what they thought and reasoned in the mind. Got up and went on their business. What a wonderful picture of Jesus' self revelation right there as he was about to allow himself to be taken and crucified on a cross. Isaiah chapter 9, 6, another great Advent scripture. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Love this scripture. For unto us a child is born. And to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isn't that amazing? I mean, the whole of the doctrine of incarnation is in that one prophecy in Isaiah. Isn't that incredible in the Old Testament? And I love it, because unto us a child is born, but... To us, a son is given. So this speaks about the incarnation. A child is born, but that doesn't mean that the son began at that moment. A child truly was born into the world, but a son was given. You hear what I mean? The son already was. The son was not born, if you know what I'm saying. The son was given. For God so loved the world, so... so yeah. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So a child was born, but a son was given. You can't give something you've not got. It wasn't a child and son were born, but a son became a child. And there you've got wonderful pictures. Mighty God, everlasting father, that this child would be a king as well. Colossians chapter 1.16, at least I think that's what I've got if I've written it down properly. Colossians 1, let's go from 15. Colossians 1.15, talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Can you see how many times we've been seeing all the fullness dwells in him, Everything's created by him. He's the image of the invisible God. Uh, he is the exact representation of his nature in Hebrew. This is high, high, what we would call high Christology. Christology is the study of the person of Christ. What does the Bible teach us about the person of Christ? And like it said, you will get scholars. There's not scholars and people that say, oh, it's all made up, this idea about Jesus being God. He was just a... A great teacher, he, like Muhammad was a great teacher, just like Buddha was a great teacher. He was one of the great teachers. No, the earliest, Colossians is very early, 
the earliest Christian understanding was this high Christology. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. So, he, all things were created. He is the firstborn of all creation. This does not mean he was created, because we're just about to read he created everything. So what does firstborn mean? Again, it is the place of inheritance. The firstborn was the one that inherited. So this is talking about the fact that he is the firstborn, the image of the invisible God. Now, let's talk a little bit about why was it important that God became man? Why couldn't have God just come down in God form? Sometimes in the Old Testament, we get what we call, theologically, theophanies. Theophanies. What's a theophany? A theophany in the Old Testament is when God comes down to earth in an appearance. So you get times when Abraham, for example... Uh, when those three men came to Abraham, and after that he realized that one of them was the Lord. And Joshua, when the angel of the Lord, sometimes, when it talks about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is God coming down and appearing in a form of a bit like an angel or a man. You know when... Um, uh, the three, Meshach, Abednego, and um, Shadrach, when, when they were down in the fire, there was a fourth man, like the Son of Man. Well, that was a theophany, or sometimes people call it a Christophany, saying that it was Christ coming down in a form to communicate. But that's not the incarnation, is it? It's just God coming and showing himself in a cert certain, certain form. So why did God have to come in human form? Why didn't he just come in one of those forms as the angel of the Lord and walk amongst us as the angel of the Lord and speak to us? Well, let's have a look at some of these things, why the incarnation was necessary. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 20. Leave along. Some in Mark. Okay, this is the healing of the man, paralyzed man who came through the roof. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who sinned? who speaks blasphemies for who can forgive god but who can forgive sins but god alone and then later on jesus answers and said verse 24 but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he says be healed and so who can forgive sins that but god alone this is why it was so necessary for jesus to become man because of the sin issue i don't have time to go into it but it's very interesting in the second half of romans chapter five so if you're making notes you can go the second part of romans chapter five there is a comparison between adam and christ and basically what the what the second half of romans chapter five says is this is that through one man the whole of humanity was plunged into sin. When Adam fell, when Adam and Eve fell, but Adam, you see, why does it say Adam sinned and not Eve? Because Adam was the head. Adam was the representative, all right? And when Adam fell, he took all of us with us. We're all descended from Adam. And when he fell, we fell. If you read that passage in Romans 5, you'll find this. Everything that happened to Adam happened to us. That's why before we were saved, we were in Adam. We, we are of his seed. And everything that happened to Adam happened to us. He fell, we fell. He was subject to death, we were subject to death. 
He was condemned. We were condemned. Everything that happened to him happened to his line. A definition that I often give of when people say, can you give me a definition of sin? What is sin? Sin is a spiritual, hereditary disease. Sin is a spiritual, hereditary disease. It's passed down. We are born spiritually defective, spiritually handicapped. Do you know that? Uh, David said, I was a sinner in my mother's womb. And it's an inherited spiritual disease. We are fallen. You don't have to teach a child to sin. You have to teach them to stay straight. And we are born with this sinful tendency. You know, in life, we say, oh, I'm walking straight. I'm walking straight. I'm walking straight. And you think you are, but you're not. It's like having a car and the steering wheel. I used to have a car and it was all right. But if I took my hand off the steering... Oh, no, I shouldn't have said that. But if I, took my <laughs> it was, if I took my hand off the steering wheel, it'd begin to do this. But why? Because it was set to veer off straight. That's how we are. And so it speaks about Adam. Then it compares Christ. It says, as through one man sin entered the world... So through Christ, Christ, the gift of salvation. So we have these two representatives of humanity. Um, um, uh, the great middle-aged, middle-aged, the great theologian from the Middle Ages, Anselm, says this about the sin problem. He says, human sin being debt, the debt was so great that while man alone owned, owed it, sorry, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both God and man. Uh, Bible teacher Carl Henry says this about the virgin birth, because this is what we also celebrate at Christmas. Carl Henry says, for the virgin birth itself carries by implication the sum and substance of the gospel. You see, Jesus was born of a virgin. It makes it clear in the New Testament. Some people say, oh, when you go back to the Old Testament and you look at, the, I think it's the Isaiah passage that speaks about being born of a virgin, they say, oh, the word virgin can also be a young maiden. Well, that's true, but in those days, difficult to believe, Young maidens were virgins. And also, I've seen a study by uh, Calvin Eaton's father, Michael Eaton, that shows that that word, young girl or virgin, in the Old Testament, whenever it is used in the Old Testament, there are different words for girls, and that word always refers to an unmarried woman. There's another word that's used for a married woman. But then when you go to Matthew and Luke and read about what happened, it makes it clear that this was a virgin birth. Interestingly enough, I think I'll just bring this in. Interestingly enough at this time, for our Muslim friends, sometimes Muslims will have a big difficulty with the idea of Jesus being the Son of God. And they will say, God has no children. And they'll say, how can God have a son? God can't have sex with a woman. Have you ever heard that? God can't have sex with a woman. Well, they need to read their own Quran because the Quran, not that we believe it's a book of authority, but they do, and that's why it's important. The Quran teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. Do you know that? That it was a miracle birth. So the Quran says that Jesus was born of a virgin. So if any Muslim ever comes to you and starts giving you the sort of, how can God have sex with a woman? Just say, what are you talking about? You don't even know your own Quran. Your own Quran teaches you, that Jesus was born of a virgin. So therefore, where was his father? Many of them will say, well, it was just a miracle. But for us, we understand, how did this happen and why? Jesus was born of a virgin because he was not of the line of Adam. Okay, in Adam all sinned, who is offspring? But Jesus was not the offspring of Adam. Now, Jesus was the offspring of Mary. And so Jesus had a real human body and it came from his mother. 
But if you say, well, who was Jesus' father? It wasn't Joseph, you see. And if you look at Joseph or, or any other person on the earth, you can say who's their father, and you can trace their father right back, and who would be their ultimate father? Adam, all right? But if you look at Jesus, and you can say, well, who was his mother? Well, it was Mary, a real mother, of course. But then if you say, well, who was his father? You wouldn't say Joseph. He was like a second Adam. And so Jesus, when he was born of a virgin, he was not born with the spiritual hereditary disease called sin. You see, how, how was that passed down? I don't know. It's spiritual how it's passed down, but it obviously needs father and mother. It's not the sex act. Sex is not sinful between husband and wife. So, so some people used to teach that sex is sin. And that, and that when a, a mother and father come together and have sex and a child, it's the sex act through which, that's nonsense. That's just an unhealthy view of a gift of God to marriage, sex. But somehow it wasn't passed down because there wasn't the human father and mother together. So Jesus was born perfect. It was a second opportunity for mankind. Jesus was coming to reverse what Adam had done. And so, when he was sacrificed on the cross, we see, and this is the final scripture I'll bring to you, 2 Corinthians 5.19, which explains the importance of the incarnation and the virgin birth. We'll go from... We'll go from verse 17, because that reads nicely. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So here we go. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. What's this talking about? It's talk, this new creation is a new redeemed humanity. So before you're in Christ, who were you in? Adam. Before you were in Christ, you're, there's only two types of people on the world today. Those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. Before you were in Christ, you were in Adam. What does that mean? You were in his line. And that meant that everything that happened to Adam happened to you. He fell, you fell. He was judged, you were judged. Yeah? Everything. But when you became born again, what happened? You became a new creation. Now you're no longer in the spiritual line of Adam you have stepped out of Adam and the old man has been crucified. Whenever the, the New Testament speaks about your old man, it's talking about who you were when you were in Adam. But now you are a new man, new woman, and you are in Christ, a new creation. The old Adam, the old Adam nature has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so Jesus came to bring salvation, forgiveness, but not just sins forgiven. He came to restore humanity to God. That's why the Bible, the New Testament, says so many times, in Christ, doesn't it? You read Ephesians 1 or 2, you can find 14 times, 15 times, in Christ you're this, in Christ you're that, in Christ you're that. What is that? It's not just a, 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 a mystery phrase, in Christ. Oh, praise the Lord, what does that mean? It means you're not in Adam anymore. Because you're either in Christ or in Adam. It means that whoever you are in, you receive their benefits in Christ or you receive their punishments in Adam. So in Adam, you are under the power of sin, Satan and condemnation of the law. In Adam, that's who you are. You are, you are in a terrible, destructive condemned place. You are dead in your sins and transgressions. You walk according to the principles of this world and you are under the power of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2. In Adam, what a horrible place to be. Dead to God. But in Christ, now because God became man 
and set up a new Adam who passed the devil's test in the wilderness, not fail. And then who took the sins of the whole Adamic race, everybody from Adam, all of us, took our sins on, us, on himself and paid fully the price that was needed when Adam lost, when Adam fell, the fullness of that judgment Jesus took paid the price so that anybody believes in him immediately, not just has their sins forgiven, but becomes a new creation. This is why often when I preach at carol services and things like that, I'll talk about the fact that Jesus's birth reminds us of our new birth. Because, because of Christmas, you have been born again. So when we see Jesus born into the world, we say, thank God, because I was born into this world in Adam. But when I believed in God, God did a miracle in me. And now I'm not who I was before. I'm not in Adam. I'm in a new family now. Jesus is my elder brother and my, and my father is in heaven. I'm a heavenly citizen. And I am born all over again on the inside. This is the beauty of the doctrine of the incarnation. Tonight at the rival service, I'm going to be speaking on the subject of mind the gap. And we're going to be focusing on the prayer of Daniel when he took God's word and through that word brought deliverance to his people. And we're going to talk about what happens behind the scenes in spiritual warfare when we pray. So it's basically an encouragement to stand in the gap and, and to see what God's going to do in our lives. Next week, we'll continue uh, with our second, it's only a two-part series, in Christmas truths and then we'll be into the Christmas concerts. We're going to be having two of them, a shorter one at five and the one in the evening and also the Christmas carol services. What we're going to do right now is we're going to close with a song. Do stay with us for this so we finish together and those of you that wish to take this time, if we could have the green envelope stewards ready, those of you that wish to give a Thanksgiving offering, you haven't had a chance to do it before and you want to do it now, well, you're, you're very welcome um, to, to do that. Don't forget while this is going on, this business, our business community next Saturday. If, if, you, if you think, God, I need to move on from this job, or I don't even know how to present my CV, or you're struggling finding work, if you have questions over how your career is going, or you just don't even have a job, do come next Saturday. We've had testimonies. We, we do this regularly now. We've had testimonies where people have been helped uh, on these things. It's totally free, and people have been empowered and helped. These are our top businessmen and women in the church giving their time, so they can really give you some advice if you just feel stuck in, in that. That's happening next Saturday, and the details are there uh, in Revival Times. All right, let's stand together, and we're going to go out uh, praising the Lord.